This is episode 4 with former professional rugby player Issa Nathiwa. A quote from Gillian Michaels. One setback is one setback. It's not the end of the world. I just want to welcome Issa Nathiwa who's uh, joined us on this episode. Thanks a lot for making time, brother, to, to be here with us today. Happy to be here, bro. Good to see you. <laughs> we obviously had a chat before we uh, started recording on this, uh, this episode and that, so we're just going to delve straight into it and, that, and go straight into pretty much what's been your biggest challenge uh, that you faced in your rugby career as a professional. I think, um, you know, there's, there's so many pressures about, but I think sort of returning from injury and how you deal with that is is just always the hard was always the hardest and I was pretty lucky I didn't have too many injuries along the way um but as I got a little bit older um they still weren't major injuries but just sort of how you deal with coming back from um sort of slight sort of knee surgeries ankle surgeries those sort of things they they just weren't always the biggest challenges you know um you just left so you got so much time rehabbing, um, sort of dealing with physios, um, that you've sort of got to control your thoughts, you know, because there's just so many uh, demons and thoughts that can just sort of eat away at you if you aren't in a good headspace. Um, so for me, you know, I was lucky enough that I didn't have too many injuries, but I think it was at the back end of your career when you see the young guys coming through also, um, just how you dealt with that was probably the biggest, one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, tell us, I mean, you, you touched on about your thoughts and demons that's in your, your own headspace and that. How were you able to deal with that in terms of your own mindset and that uh, to, to get yourself through uh, those times and that? Obviously, there were times when you had your own setbacks and that and probably through that period and that there probably been one or two occasions that were you probably thought right next week I'm going to get just the simple things like running or lifting weights and then obviously no it's not quite ready for it and then you take that step back so how were you able to deal with that? I think I was always taking a positive attitude into everything um, and I don't know if it sort of has been the right um, way to go about it but I just used to always attack my um, rehab when it came to sort of uh, especially returning from surgeries. Um, I, you know, a physio would sit down with me and talk me through the plan and saying, this is where you're going to play. It's going to be an eight-week schedule to come back from training, uh, from surgery. These are the benchmarks you have to hit. These are the markers you have to hit. And you'd say, and this is going to be an eight-week return to play protocol. And I'd say, no, nah, bugger that. I'm going to do it in four weeks. So I sort of just always used to attack it and uh, keep a positive mindset because you can only control, you know, as much as you control. So, so, you know, what you ate, your nutrition, your recovery, your rest, how you, you know, attack the whole thing. Um, it was, that's how you sort of control your thoughts. So just keeping a positive, a positive attitude and a positive mindset to every single, you know, facet of it um, has a massive difference. Obviously, a lot of this uh, would have, you know, developed as you, got more experience with your time and that leaving from Auckland going into Leinster and that just before around your you know your debut and all of that um, in terms of being with the Auckland setup and that what would you say uh, some of the qualities that you probably took away from whether it's your your, your parents or a teacher or or a coach 
that kind of like helped you develop those kind of um, mindset and that getting yourself ready as you come like obviously fresh with your with your debut and, and that kind of setup? Um, I definitely think some of the older guys in the squad, um, more so than the coaches, had a really big impact on me at a, at a young age. Um, and these guys weren't always sort of the superstars. They weren't the big All Blacks. Um, guys like Nick White and Justin Collins, um, sort of the old school era that crossed between the two. Um, I learned so much from them early on. Uh, those two in particular that that sort of, you know, catapulted me through my career and through my debut. And, you know, they weren't words, they weren't big fluffy speeches and words of encouragement. It was more just the actions that I used to see how they used to conduct themselves on the field and off the field. And this is, you know, they would have crossed the, the transition from amateur into professionalism and would have been the forefront to it, but they just had the highest of standards through training, through being on time, all doing all the basics right and doing it really well. And I think those guys in particular were sort of the, you know, the benchmark and the, the platform that, you know, created who I was as a rugby player. If you don't have those sort of role models around you um, and if you don't have them around you at an early age or especially when you're coming up towards your debut, you know, you, it's going to be a rocky road. If you don't set that um, real solid platform early on from good role models, it's, uh, I don't know where my career would have ended up. Yeah, I think that's one of the key principles that they hold uh, daily in, in, in the New Zealand rugby setup itself. And they're making sure that they've got the right role models there, the senior guys. And, and like you just touched on, there's not, not a lot of them are all about the talk. And a lot of them are really all about actions and that and just showing and leading, by the way, through their own actions and how they go about doing things. And that, you know, obviously you made that big transition from Auckland, having a successful campaign with them and then moving on to, to Leinster. What's, what's the difference, do you think, uh, between the two, or was there any difference uh, between the two setups? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, look, there's the two clubs, you know, playing for Auckland and Maritain Cup or New Zealand Cup, NPC, as it was back in the day. Um, every, every club's at a different evolution, I guess, of where they actually are at. Um, Auckland has such a proud history of continually winning trophies, and, you know, we had just you know, joined that sort of era. We under sort of underperformed from the Blues, but it was on the back end of, you know, the 2003 when King Carlos was running the show and everything was good. But then by the time I went to Dublin, Leinster were just at a different stage of their evolution, really. And they were always close to making finals, but never really got across the line. Um, and we had guys like Shane Horgan, Brian O'Driscoll, Gervin Dempsey, yeah. Gordon Darcy, just the legends of the game. So they were at a stage where um, a certain coach and Michael Checker, he was already three, he had already been there for three years and has built a really solid platform, had changed the ethos and culture and mentality of the club. I sort of just came along the right timing of when all that sort of came together. Um, but the season wasn't perfect either. So the difference was, I think, Leinster were on the cusp of cracking it and we're just on the stage of sort of building um, where Auckland were already in that stage it was about carrying it on. But there, there was a real high performance attitude at Leinster. Um, even when we were getting changed, 
near out of the back of our car or, or crammed into a tiny changing room. We didn't, there were no excuses. So I think that was quite different because of the difference in the shape of the season. Also, you know, two, two sets of coaches, two campaigns, two competitions in New Zealand compared to one set of coaches for the whole year. It's just a different setup and structure also, but it was really the birth of sort of a real high performance attitude at Leinster. And I sort of just came in at the right time with it. And so do you think that with all this high performance kind of attitude and, and obviously the ethos behind it all and that, do you think that was led by a lot of the, the big names, obviously with Brian O'Driscoll and Shane um, and those boys and that there, because you, you definitely had a wealth of names there that you're, uh, you know, running around on the paddock with, which uh, versus a lot of the others who were pretty much kind of like uh, taking scraps from what's left. Yeah, so I think Michael Checker probably um, pushed them and changed the culture first in the club. Um, and that's what I hear from, you know, the three years prior. They were doing a lot of things right, but it was sort of Michael Checker's attitude and um, his ruthlessness that changed the culture first and foremost. Um, and obviously, once, you know, we get across the line and win Europe, it was a big hurdle. I mean, once you got a taste of success and winning it's like a drug everyone just wanted more of it um and then the followers my my second year we sort of lose to toulouse in a semi-final and that was the longest summer ever um you're just sitting back hanging out for the next competition to start again but losing in semi-finals sucks it's probably worse than losing a final and then you sort of inject joe schmidt into the era um and the start of his campaign and everything just went up another level. So there was a real high performance attitude that each coach that has come along um, has had an impact to. And then obviously with the likes of Stuart Lancaster and Leo Cullen in charge now, they've just gone, you know, up another level again. Yeah. If you were to say, uh, talk about, um, for someone to become a better leader and that, you know, what would you say are some of the principles that you need to be, become a, a great leader and in terms of like leading and that? Um, I think your actions first and foremost, um, you know, in rugby terms, uh, it's about playing well first. Everything else is, is secondary. Like uh -huh. if you can just play well first, um, leadership will sort of just come naturally. Um, but also you've got to be, have a real big self-awareness of yourself um, and how where you're at as a leader. Um, everyone can be a leader. You don't need to be, you know, a 30-year-old. You don't need to be a captain. You don't need to be the starting, you know, first names on a piece of paper. Everyone can lead in their own right. And we'd probably encourage the younger guys to be leaders from their own age. And that's not about speaking out of turn in meetings or just speaking to be heard. It's just about how you carry yourself. So you've got to have a massive self-awareness of yourself and continually look at how to get yourself better. Um, I think that's a real uh, key leadership quality that we sort of drive a lot um, and did at Leinster. Yeah. So how did they? How were they able to kind of like um, inject a lot of that? attitude into like especially with the new guys coming through and that obviously by then you would have had a lot of the senior boys and they pretty much already installed a lot of that stuff into the club itself and that and a lot of the boys and that how were they able to induct that into the new guys coming through and that did you have someone that was already there like a, a high performance kind of person and that 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 really drilled to make sure that everybody was heading in the right direction and that 
Yeah, those we we did. We got a little, uh, through the Michael Checker era. He introduced yeah. um, a guy called Ender McNulty, who is um, an absolute performance genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it works when you're doing it as a whole group um, compared to doing it individually. You know, there's different benefits depending on where you are at. And it worked for us as a team in the first year that we were um, won it and. As it progressed on, it probably worked again, but then it sort of peaked, and then guys realised that they got more benefit out of it on an individual basis. Um, and you know, that's down to individuals leading themselves and looking to get better and how they do that. Um, but then you sort of once again, evolution winning sort of generates all this um, positive mindset, and you know, you just want to win and win more, and then. You know, there's little snippets of people coming along, um, different people at different times. But I think what's really key in the high performance attitude and how to sort of, you know, young guys to see it is they've got to actually buy into it. So the values that were at Leinster 10 years ago, where we won it for the first time, was pretty irrelevant um, when 10 years later, there were guys not even involved with that era. Uh So it was about re readdressing what the values and the culture are at the club, but then having a buy-in from the younger guys and feeling like they can actually um, contribute. And you've got to feel a little bit vulnerable at times to contribute like that. But if they don't, then they're sort of living on a bygone era. So it was about sort of rebuilding those values and cultures as a club again under Leo Cullen. Not forgetting about the past, but just sort of building their own legacy to go forward. And I think that's where you... You know, that you build culture and you sort of build leadership from a younger age. So when you left, uh, you made you made an, uh, a decision that you were going to leave Lens, um earlier. I think you probably had maybe another season that was left in your contract and then decided to go back home and they, for, for, for a year or so. And they took us through that because you ended up then flipping it over and going back again. Yeah, so um, oh, like we went to Leinster um, my wife and I, we went with two suitcases and the first time we came back with a 20-foot container and three kids. Um, and we won five trophies in five years with Leinster and it was a really successful time. But at the time, I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a lifestyle choice to return to New Zealand. It was um, so my wife and the girls could bring the kids up around family, um, all those sorts of decisions weighed more heavily on having a good family life and enjoying, you know, your kids' upbringing than the actual rugby. So, you know, it was a really hard decision to leave Leinster, um, but I was happy with what I had succeeded at the time. So I won five trophies in five years, and then, you know, I didn't want to play for anyone else. So I would have preferred to retire for Leinster than actually just go home and try and, you know, slog it out for another couple of seasons. I wanted to keep those friendships and those bonds. So that's why we left and why we we came home for about 18 months. And, um, you know, work life is very different, um, which we all learn. Um, Everyone transitions very differently. But, you know, I went back and worked for the Blues um, as sort of a performance coach for about, for two seasons, near on two seasons. And that was interesting learnings in itself. and learning sort of the background of New Zealand rugby and how it all operates, um, very different to what goes on in Leinster. Um, And then all of a sudden I got a text from one of the boys that 
just joking around really um, and saying, oh, would you come back, blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, a few text messages turned into a few phone calls and Leinster were, they were performing at a high level um, as in semi-finals of Europe, um, 100 minutes against Toulon in the semi-final just to make it to the final <laughs> and, and just losing out. So still performing at a really high level and winning the Pro 14. But um, I think a lot of players at the club felt it wasn't the level that it needed to be at. So that sort of gives you a picture of the high-performance attitude at Leinster. You know, losing in semi-finals in Europe isn't enough. Winning Pro 14s isn't enough. They want more than that. And um, it sort of coincided with Johnny Sexton returning to from Russell Met two years uh-huh. in Russell Metro, Leo Cullen stepping up as head coach. Um, it all sort of combined for me to return and you know the grass I knew what colour the grass was on the other side uh, coming yeah. back to Leinster and Dublin wasn't a hard decision for my wife and I and um, we had had 18 months nearly two years in New Zealand and then we thought why don't we just give this another go and um, head back over so we did and you know different times but um, definitely just got back into the groove of things. Yeah so how was, it, was there much of a difference when you went back that, that second time round and that obviously like with uh, having uh, Sixton back and then obviously with Leo Cullen taking that new step up as a new coach and that, how did that feel with the new setup and that with these guys obviously back and, and obviously with uh, Leo Cullen at a different role? Yeah, we were, um, I think Johnny and I were quite naive and thinking we were just going to walk back in there and win Europe again. Um, yeah. But the evolution of a club over this course of two seasons um, – had dropped this, probably guys would agree that probably dropped the standard. And as I say, there's, there was the standard on the field. I was still, they had won a Pro 14 when I was away. Yeah. They had lost in the semifinals of Europe. And that wasn't good enough. Um, and I think the culture in the place took the biggest hits while certain guys were gone. Um, and that's what needed to be rebuilt. So it took 12 months my first season back up there and we lost to Connick in the Pro 12 final um, and we didn't even make it out of the pool stages of Europe. But that was probably a blessing in disguise because it gave everyone a massive realisation, pick up the arse about where we were really at and stop trying to kid yourself and that we had to actually build it again and start again. Um, And when you're in that situation, you know, past results, the reality was everyone had moved on without you. Saracens were just kicking into uh-huh. gear. Um, it was the end of the Toulon sort of three peaks. They were sort of coming out the back and Saracens were sort of setting the new standard. So it was about sort of realising where we were at as a club, rebuilding those foundations and culture again. And this is all led by, you know, Johnny and, and Leo Cullen. Um, and... We still go ahead through that whole season. We nearly win every game. We won about 18 games in a row. And then we lose to Claremont in a, in a semi-final. Um, and we lose, then the following week, we lose in a semi-final to Scarlets at home. And they were <laughs> red. They only had 14 men for about 60 minutes of the game. <laughs> so, you know, like, every, all the good stuff was going on in the background. All the culture rebuilding, all the values, all the habits were starting to get back. But we go and we get to two semifinals and lose everything, you know. So um, times were different, but times were building. And it was about building on that whole season where we lost in two semis. And if you fast forward 12, the last 12 months that I was there, um, 
we go and win the double. Um, yeah. We we beat um, Russing in Europe and Bilbao and win that, and then we built Munster at home the following weekend, and then we win the Pro 14 in Dublin against Scarlets. So we go from losing really terrible year in my first 12 months back, realization. Losing in two semi-finals, you know, a lot of clubs would be happy with that, but, you know, not Leinster. Fast forward 12 months and we won the double. So um, there were guys in the Irish team, um, James Ryan, Dan Levy, Johnny Sexton. These guys didn't lose a game of rugby in a calendar year. They, they won the Six Nations. They won the Pro 14, the Champions Cup, a summer tour down... Um, in Aussie, uh, they beat the All Blacks in Dublin and won uh-huh. the Grand Slam. Like these, it's pretty phenomenal to see how that whole sort of time went. Um, and some guys didn't lose a game of rugby. I know that's pretty hard to say you can achieve. So looking at that, you just touched on um, the two semifinals that you guys lost. Were you able to kind of like envision that what was going to be waiting for you at the other end and there, you know, about was just winning everything else afterwards and there. Was there actually a, a lot of uh, self-awareness, a lot of uh, self-reflection and, and that kind of stuff and trying to rebuild to try and get yourself back to obviously getting those kind of results in that? Yeah, there was. There was a really tough off-season yeah. because um, – because when you when you if you don't make it into semis and finals um, and quarter semis and finals, your season finishes pretty early. But uh-huh. when you when you push into the late rounds of, of finals, when you got you know semis, your sort of season finishes very late, which means your preseason is starting just around the corner. Um, and we were close, you know, losing yeah. semi finals and losing them the way we did, we were close. But there were huge learnings to come out of it. Then if you've got coaches like Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster, they peel back the whole season and really go, do you know what? We scored 100 tries in the season. Something's going pretty good with our attack. This is where we can improve with defence. And then sort of understanding, if we can just tweak these few things in defence to make it better, if we can keep pushing our attack to get better, um, if we can keep growing as leaders and growing the culture, then we're going to be miles ahead of the majority of the other teams in these competitions that are sort of trying to push into their own time. So when you can focus on, have all, if you've got coaches that focus, can see all the big picture and everything, and then just focus on a few key things that will add to our performance, that was the 1%, 2 5% that made us get better, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's about explaining that to the whole group um, and then just building on the previous year. And if you can do that, then you're going to be pushing past semifinals. Yes, with, uh, with all your success and that through your career and that, if there was one specific uh, skill set that you probably developed through that time uh, that you were able to carry over to your transition in your new role now um, in terms of your financial new chapter, what would that one skill set be? Um, dealing with pressure. Yeah. dealing with pressure. Um, and they're just two different types of pressure. But I think the, uh, you know, if you're trying to win a game in Europe, you've got to be on point. You've got to win. <laughs> if you've got to win the Heineken Cup, you've got to kick goals. You've got to do all this. But pressure as a rugby player is endless. It doesn't switch off. It's 24-7 all year round. Um, even if you, you know, 
win Europe, you can celebrate for a couple of days. But the reality is, it's probably going to start ticking away in your head. I do not think I should have another burger and chips while I'm enjoying this. You know, you're, you're worrying about your nutrition. You're worrying about uh, what shape you're going to come back in preseason. Your skin folds, your body fat percentage, all these things are just endless in the rugby player's mind and professional sports and in general, you know, but in my new role in finance, if the banks are open and the lawyers and solicitors are working, I know that's only going to happen between nine and five. So everything outside of this, um, I can't control. So I think, you know, dealing with the pressure of, you know, getting the job done during the day is, is just has massive correlations with how you perform as an athlete. Uh, I also think your ability to learn and your ability to evolve, um, and I, I think that's helped me in my transition into finance. I know the finance world is a, you know, big, ugly, scary place at times. But, you know, I knew rugby players pick up a new game book every year and learn it back to front and have their own language and reasonings around how they do. Yeah. If you can learn a game book and, confer, and learn a plan, you know, game plan book and, you know, your role and moves and where you have to be, you can sort of learn on the outside world. So and I think under... A lot of rugby players sort of underestimate that. So, you know, I didn't know how to build an Excel spreadsheet or um, PDF or Word doc, but you can learn them. You know what I mean? Like, you've just, you're, you learn daily in a professional environment. You might not have those skills when you go into the corporate workplace, but you will learn them. As long as you can, you know, trust that and believe that, then, um, you know, you'll succeed. Yeah, it's crazy there because you have a lot of the uh, obviously rugby players and that that we know that that obviously looking towards to make that transition. A lot of them kind of like second guess themselves on that, but yet forget about what they've come through in order to try and get themselves to uh, create a career, build a career that they've made for themselves and that as a professional rugby player and that and that didn't come from just picking up you know a simple book and that you had to actually get out onto the pitch learn the skills and then there were skills that you had to even get better at every time like you talked about there was one percent two percent that made the difference in terms of your winnings and that was lengths and that but those are the one or two percent of learning those skills developing those skills to be better at it and that and it's the same thing when you're transitioning that it's a big scary world when you're looking at shit i don't know this this different world that's out there because it's got nothing to do with me running with a ball in my hand and that but it's exciting at the same time because it's a new challenge, like you put it in that, and you're only going to grow from taking these new challenges on board and that. And, and, and likewise, you've got, there's so many resources out there. And that obviously with the, the rugby, how it's built now in the clubs and that, they've got so many better resources that's available to these athletes. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's class. It's a shame that it wasn't kind of like there uh, around my time. And there it was, but then I guess we didn't really see too much of it because we thought, we were too cool for it. Oh, that stuff's just for the little boys and that. But now you kind of see it's becoming more of a, a more importance in terms of like getting these guys skilled up and that ready that when they do make the transition, they've got those uh, tools in place and then ready for it. Yeah, look, you, I think I, I, I sit with, you know, quite a few guys that are transitioning or just about to. And I say, when you're, you know, I can't give you advice on how you're going to handle the workplace, but I, one thing I will say is check your ego at the door. Uh -huh. um, if, if, you, if you carry the ego, if you're a part of that environment, just understand that if you're lucky enough to have 15-year career in professional rugby, 
if you walk out and you work and walk into a job, you're going to be sitting next to people that might be younger than you and have 15 years experience on your ass straight away yeah. and understand how the world works. I used to work nine to five and just, I say, check your ego at the door because just realize that the people around you and the people who you're now working with have so much more experience from you. Obviously, if you have 15 years in a professional rugby environment, by the end of your career, you're going to be held in a certain respect, a level of respect. But remember, you're walking into a place where you're the rookie. You're not at the back of the bus anymore. So I sort of do encourage guys to say, you know, have a big self-awareness around where you're at because, um, you know, I'm sitting in an office where there's people younger than me that are working in the banking industry for 15 years. They know way more than me. But if you control your thoughts, if you re- understand that you're going to, you know, your ability to learn, um, you'll get there. And you know how to deal with pressure. So they're the sort of qualities that you can, you know, take over from, you know, you're hardworking. You would never have completed fitness tests and deep tests and all those types of training unless you were hardworking as a professional athlete. Um, some guys get away with it, but the majority are hardworking. So... As long as you knuckle down um, and do that, then, you know, one, one day at a time, one week at a time, eventually you'll start to feel comfortable. It might take six months, nine months, a year. It probably took me near on probably nine or ten months to start to feel comfortable um, in my role, but yet I still get challenged every day with different situations. So um, you'll get there eventually. It just takes a little bit of time. Yeah. He says, as we come to, to the end of this episode, and I'll just ask you one, one more question on that, um, and then we'll just uh, finish up on there. If you were to look back on your career, and you look back at uh, yourself as an 18-year-old, and then you had one piece of advice to yourself, what would that one thing be? Oh, look, one thing that, you know, someone once told me that he said, um, if I could look back on the younger self, what would I say? And he said... Uh, well, he said, uh, plan for life after rugby um, because eventually, you know, as long as you plan for life along the way, you'll transition well. Um, he also said, uh, every once in a while, I'll wake up and smell the roses because a lot of people can travel through their careers and, you know, not understand where they're at and not enjoy any of it along the way. Um, but then he said, from those two things, if you want to be the absolute best of the best win championships and leave a legacy. Those two things are going to be pretty irrelevant anyway. Um, (laughs) And when I heard him say that, I was like, do you know what? I look back on my career and think, well, you know, you are in a bubble. You're cocooned in a bubble for so long um, that eventually you'll get out of the end of it. And like, as long as you are half decent with money and sort of bought a house and set yourself up, you could do a whole lot more. But I think... Um, if you give it your all, and I tell my eighteen, my eighteen-year-old self that again, if just do the same. Give it your all. Go absolute hell for leather. You know, prepare a little bit, um, and but just be smart along the way. But if you, um, you know, succeed massively in your career, you'll come out the other end with a lot of opportunities. So I think I'd probably say that to myself again. I probably wouldn't do much different. <laughs> Isa, I can't thank you enough for, for, for taking time out of your morning and that to, to join us. I know you're on the other side of the world and that. And thanks for sharing uh, your wisdom with, with a lot of the guys, uh, people that will be uh, listening and watching uh, this episode and that. 
just tell us where, where, where's the best way to, for people to find you and follow you on, on your social media. Um, look, I was never massive into social media, but I've, I've realized the tool and what it is in the business world now. So, you know, I work for um, Money Empire in Auckland and Ponsonby. Um, we just started a Beyond the Field podcast, which um, has sort of morphed out of nothing in the last month to getting a sponsor, talking about transition and talking to some, um, you know, high-powered New Zealand businessmen and athletes along uh, along the way. So, you know, you can check us out there, but, um, you know, hit me up on Facebook as well. Um, but Money Empire and Auckland, we look after the majority of New Zealand cricket and um, a lot of players offshore now. So, you know, happy to help out. Isa, thanks again, brother. It's always awesome to have a chat with you in there and seeing where you're at. Well, hopefully we'll get we'll touch, uh, touch base again probably in about a year's time and see how things are growing at Money Empire and see how, how big your empire is by then, brother. Thanks, brother. <laughs> All right, stay safe and we'll catch up again. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Issa Nathiwa as much as I did catching up with him. He's a true champion and although he has a silverware to prove it, you can hear the confidence in his tone through the interview. He's shared a lot of valuable gems from his experiences, which he's been able to carry over into his new financial chapter and career. So if you really like this episode, then can I ask you to do one more thing, and that is please leave a rating, give it a like and share this episode with someone that could use it to find another gear to push on. I truly appreciate your time and I will see you on the next phase.